Hello, and welcome to the Project Good podcast. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast interviewing experts and advocates about the pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how they suggest we move forward in the future. The Project Good podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people and the planet. For April, we're focusing on the searching for the truth on climate change. If you are lucky enough to go or follow the latest conference of the parties, or as they're referred to, COP26 and 27, which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, you have been hearing alarming things about our planet's future in 2030 if we continue on our current path. Places, animals, and things that we were used to doing may not be available as they are now. Exactly how close are we to doomsday and being forced to live alternative lifestyles? It leaves at the back of people's minds, but the truth is the problem seems overwhelming, leaving most of us with a hopeless feeling. But how much should we be leaning into those feelings? Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Mark Cortez, who's the author, entrepreneur, and longtime veteran of solar, electric vehicle, infrastructure, and energy storage industries. As one of the solar industry's early brand architects, he has been working on the front lines of the climate change industry for decades. He has raised over $20 million for multiple startups and is currently the founder and CEO of Liquid 8, a water conservation startup. Mr. Cortez is also a professor of entrepreneurship, technology, commercialization at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Mr. Cortez, through his latest book, Climate Maturity, asks readers to question what they know about climate change. Let's get into the interview. According to a number of reports on climate change, within the next two decades, global temperatures are likely to rise 1.5 degrees Celsius. The last seven years have been the warmest on record. More than one million species are at risk of extinction by climate change. Climate change is already happening and is detrimental to human life. And worst of all, many leaders are not taking it seriously. Mark Cortez, who is the author of Climate Maturity, uses his book and years within the clean technology field to raise questions about what we all truly know about the state of our planet and what we need to do. In the book, he tells us not to get too emotional to the point that we cannot think clearly about what we should do and what we shouldn't do about the information that we've gathered. Today, we will be taking a look at the information we've been given and, get, and explore some real actions that we can take. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much. So glad to be here. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you here um, on this uh, wonderful uh, morning here. Um, and so before we get into the interview, I always like to have a little bit of fun and get to know um, the guests. And so my question for you is, I wanted to know, how did you decide to um, get into this career of clean technology? Yeah, you know, I don't know that it was a clear decision. It's it's like like most paths that you take. It's just sort of a, a small fork in the road. And um, you take that one step and next thing you know, 10 years go by and you're down a whole different road. So that's how it was for me. I spent years in uh, my background is engineering, spent years as an aerospace engineer working uh, actually on the space station program, uh, the space station that's flying up there now and always had an interest in uh, had more of an interest in what you could actually do with the technology than the actual technology itself. And so I was, I always gravitated towards sales and marketing of technology products and uh, started working towards commercializing new technologies um, uh, as the, the former Soviet Union fell. And so there were all these, these companies over there that were making anything from bombs to refrigerators. And I spent two or three years going over there and trying to figure out how to commercialize some of the products that they actually had. And that sort of jump-started me into the uh, technology commercialization area. And when solar was originally booming back in about 2000, um, I, uh, I managed to get a job with Shell at the time. Shell uh, was in the, the energy business, the solar business, and uh, took a job as, as a director of product management for Shell and trying to help them decide what products that we should be offering here in the U.S. market. And then, uh, as they say, the rest is history. It's been a long, crazy road. We call it the solar coaster when you're in the business because, wow, it's been exciting, but also lots of up and downs. So uh, so that's how I got into the energy business. 
That's very cool. Yes, I know. Like, uh, yeah, solar used to be, um, I guess I'm going to show my age a little bit, but I know when I was a younger kid, you know, my, my family even had the solar panels on their roof for everything. Um, and everything was being pushed to go, you know, have solar on your roof, you know, cut your water bills, cut this, cut that. Um, so I know it uh, used to be uh, uh, pushed on everyone a lot. Um, and yeah. uh, now, of course, is uh, being um, looked at again. Um, I guess from even a different perspective, um, perhaps, and just pushing it on the the neighbors. Um, so uh, let's start talking about uh, climate change. Um, of course, you know, um, just saying the the word climate change it, it looms at everybody's um, mind. Um, you know, I'm I'm sure if we just look at it as a from a uh, just the word itself, it seems overwhelming because you're just one person on this planet of now eight billion people. So uh, most people are like, well, what can I do? You know, um, and uh, you know, if if uh, the Earth is warming and you know we can we can barely um, you know just manage our own little um, ourselves and our our homes. So to think of a, a you know a whole entire planet. Uh, you know, overwhelms people. So I guess we should start with the the first question: Is climate change actually real? Yeah, climate change is real. I, I have never said, um, uh, you know, and this is it gets so political, and it's such a hot button issue. Climate change is real. Look, the climate is always changing. It has always been changing. I think everyone accepts that, and certainly mankind's, you know, our industrial revolution and us discovering and burning fossil fuels contributes to that. So it's certainly an influence. And uh, there's no doubt um, that, that uh, you know, us burning a bunch of fossil fuels, continuing to do that is, and, and coupled with the fact that we now have 8 billion people on the planet, uh, those are big factors that affect the earth. So yes, we are, um, cl the climate is changing. It's always changing. It's going to continue to change. And we, um, as people, are having some influence on that. Okay, yes, because yes, there is that. That's you, you answered the first thing that is on debate <laughs> right now. The is like, is the denier really or, happening? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, look, I, I think um, this is, you know, part of why I set down this journey. Someone coming from the renewable energy industry, as I did, um, and now it's come, it's come so far to the other way, which is, uh, you sort of have to pick sides, right? You have to say you have to buy into this whole narrative of it's the climate apocalypse and we're all going to be dead by Thursday. Oops, today is Thursday, so maybe it's next <laughs> Thursday. Or it's uh, or you're a complete denier, right? You're oh, you're just completely close. It's like the Wizard of Oz. You close the curtains and pay no attention uh, to the man behind the curtain. And so you know it's just ridiculous. And that's part of what inspired me to take this journey because it's not an easy one when you decide to have a different opinion about the climate, especially that flies in the face of an industry that you helped build. Um, you know, I just uh, I just advocate for a pragmatic and rational discussion down the middle, um, which is we all know that, uh, you know, that burning, you know, no one's going to go and, and breathe in a tailpipe. Right. Because <laughs> it's bad stuff. Mm -hmm. And so um, so there's 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 some logic. And then there's just the logic times a thousand that turns into some some hysteria. So, um, you know, you have to buy into one of these narratives. And I said, no, there's a better way. There's just a better way. We need to be having a realistic discussion. Um, and I think what really drove it home for me is, is working with um, young adults that are entering the workforce that, you know, at Cal Poly, as I'm a, a professor there, you know, here we've got 22 year olds who, who have heard their entire life. They've been hearing these messages of we're all going to die. And they literally are saying to themselves, well, maybe we shouldn't have kids because, you know, the planet's going to be dead. So what's the point? And, you know, and as someone who helped start this industry, I sit there and I go, wait a sec, that is so not true. It's literally just complete fiction. And so uh, I get it that that's the narrative. I guess I get it that those are the stories that are out there. Um, so I, I just couldn't help but feel that we have failed uh, as a an energy community, as a client community. If that's the message that that 22 year old adults are having as they enter the workforce, then that's just an epic fail. And And so I felt motivated to to try to dig into the truth, whatever truth there is, like real truth there is out there. Um, uh, let's just try to dig into it and shine a light on that. And so that's what set me down on this journey is to try to help that. 
Yes. And so, you know, you, you were talking about the like the two popular um, uh, mindsets. And, you know, one of the things when I was uh, going through your book is that, you know, um, I found that myself that I had uh, become siloed in my thinking as well, um, that, you know, it was either uh, this way or that way. And, you know, um, your book brought to light that there's sometimes an in-between that we're, we're missing. And, you know, uh, as you mentioned, there's the, uh, you know, the doomsday thinking, like, you know, like, what's the point? <laughs> Throw up our hands and right. just like, right. and, and, and cry and just, you know, plan your next eight years the best that you can. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, that's what that's the, um, uh, I guess I should ask you too, because that's, uh, you know, um, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the uh, UN uh, 2030 goals. Um, yeah. And that, and then also that uh, 2030 is kind of our our marker of no return. Like if we don't if we don't start, uh, you know, making improvements in these next eight years here, um, is that you know by 2030, uh, if we keep our heads in the sand or we just say you know whatever, um, and 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 continue that, uh, you know, there's we're and at that point we just we're at the hopeless stage. Um, right. Yeah. And so um, and I know you're uh, uh, I would say um, just based off what you're saying that you you feel that we have more time than 2030. Is that correct? Or do you think that um, that's not necessarily true? So, um, uh, you know, back in 1989, so I'll date myself a little bit. The first time I heard about the you know climate and issues that it was probably before 1989, but but really the IPCC was really just getting going back then, 1989. So back in 1989, there was 10 years to live, okay? And then in 1999, there was 10 years to live. And then in 2000, there's 10 years to live. So so we're now into the fifth decade of, of you know, Hey, only, you know, the countdown till tipping point. So, um, come on. <laughs> I mean, it is a story. It's a narrative. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that you will, if, if you spend some time, you know, let, let's talk about the IPCC a little bit. Um, they're the United Nations, right? They are a political group. They're not scientists. There are scientists who contribute their reports to that report, to their uh, findings, but um, they are a worldwide group of political analysts that number in the in the thousands. OK, so um, their job is to frame science for their own political consumption. So um, they aren't uh, that whereas back in the when they started, they had a charter to be impartial and not be advocates. That has changed dramatically. So starting in about 2014, and I actually have charts that show, um, you know, the IPCC, the way that they do this is they create scenarios. So, you know, scenario planning is just a tried and true way of literally just taking a blank spreadsheet and say, hey, what if all these different things happened? Let's lay out a bunch of scenarios. And then what if we make a bunch of assumptions of things? And then let's plug in some things that we actually know, like, you know, temperatures that we've measured over the past 20 years and actual science that we can measure. Let's plug all of those things into scenario, hit enter and see what happens. And so what it, what the result is, is this scattershot of uh, just a whole bunch of different scenarios. There's 45 different scenario classes that the IPCC has gathered. And within that, those scenario classes are, I think it's 1143 different scenarios and they are all made up. So let's just, you know, I always I always remind myself and everyone that all of the scenarios that we're looking at, they're all made up scenarios. These are scenarios that have been crafted to help us try to project into the future. They're all forward looking guesses. Um, so there's 1100 and, and they all go through these very sophisticated models. And so what ends up is this this big scattershot a uh, piece of information that is, hey, look at all of the things that could potentially happen, you know, assuming all of these different variables. So you're taking into account uh, temperature measurements from the past. You're projecting those forward. You're, you're trying to guess how the globe, the planet, the physical planet is going to react to more people, more energy, different energy mixes, different growth patterns, different population patterns, different population migration. So just try to think about how complex that is and and it is literally an exercise in trying to predict the future so i always remind myself and everyone about that because the idea that we have 10 years to live is is a fabrication 
It's just fiction. And so of those 1,100 different scenarios, pick one, all right? Look at those and say, which one do you think that you want to create a story about? So what has unfortunately happened and what I pick on in my book is the most extreme scenario is called RCP, representative, representative concentration pathway 8.5, which just, you know, takes the worst of everything that's happened in the past and projects that forward into the future. Um, so it's called RCP 8.5. So people have chosen to communicate that as the baseline and you can chart how much it gets um, communicated in the different IPC reports. So over the past 25, 30 years, you can see that that scenario, whereas when it started, all the scenarios were created equal by 2014 and certainly by 2022, the most extreme scenario is now front and center. And so it, get, it gets mentioned like 60% of the time as, as this is what's going to happen, except that there's nothing backing that. There is absolutely no science. There's no probability theory. It's just a narrative that people chose. So, and so what happens with that? So you feed that to the media and what does the media do? They have their own stories and their own positions on things. So you, you spoon feed that to the New York times. Guess what happens? The headline says we've got eight years to live. And of course, politicians, you know, that feeds right into them because they want the money for it. As we just saw in Egypt last week with COP 27, what came out of that? Hey, guess what? The big international uh, climate reparations fund that is going to be funded by the U.S. and China and all of us. Right. So the money, it's follow the money. So so that's the story. So eight years to live. No, that's absolutely ridiculous. And there is zero science and I'll say zero science that leads us there. So um, that's unfortunately one of the challenges with climate change is there's a bunch of stuff we know. And then we've projected a bunch of that stuff forward. And then, um, unfortunately, scientists and the scientific community has has strayed into this area of advocacy. And uh, so they now take their own science and form opinions about what that science should mean and what it should mean to us. And they communicate that. And that's that's a big part of what's happening in. Uh, in all of these doomsday reports is you have scientists who personally believe that we're headed a certain direction, um, but their science doesn't, doesn't prove it. And, and that's the, that's the challenge that we have in trying to find this truth. I was expecting to find smoking guns and all I found was fog. Honestly, I think the, <laughs> the deeper I dug into it, the cloudier this became. And so that was an eye opener for me. Yes, and I guess uh, the I guess the question to that is: Is there a way for us to find the truth? Do you believe? Well, I you know there I I think part of it is continuing to peel back the onion. Part of it is, and the reason I'm doing this exact thing is, we got to be able to talk about this. I can't tell you how many times when I when I raise my hand, and again, part of why I wrote this book was I've been raising my hand for 15 years. But when you're in the solar industry, you're not allowed to raise your hand. You're, you just have to you have to just, you have to go out there and you have to say, yes, solar is the answer to everything. Right. It's just like <laughs> everything. you have to say it or else you get uh, you get, uh, you know, uh, kind of blackballed in a lot of ways. And you certainly get pressured to not say stuff like that. So um, part of it is is is, you know, peel back, you know, don't don't stop at the media. If you read The New York Times, you're going to get a very clear narrative. Uh Oppositely, if you read the Fox Fox News, you're going to get, you know, a very different narrative. So my suggestion is read both, you know, read as much as, as you can from both um, and just try to sort through that, because uh, what you're going to find as you read most of these narratives are uh, look for the qualifiers. Right. Because uh, qualifiers are if could, might, maybe, potential, projected. Right. Those are all words that describe guesses. So, so mm -hmm. as you train yourself to go through the stories, I would just say, start looking at when you read these stories, you know, put that lens on and say, you know, if, if a story is saying, you know, if this bad stuff happens in 20 years, it's projected that we're all dead, you know, put up the red flag, just, you know, read it with that lens, because most, most of what you're reading are just projections of that. Um, so those are a, a couple of things and, and then be willing to just sort of ask questions about it. You know, we need, 
Um, we need scientists to be science scientists. We need them to prove stuff. Uh, we need them to explain to us the difference between looking backwards and measuring stuff and then looking forwards and guessing at stuff. Yes, they're sophisticated models. Awesome. But here's the, here's what no one tells you. The models are wrong every single time, every single time. So they're wrong all the time. And yet we're expected to spend trillions of dollars and in some cases reverse global economies for models that are wrong continually. I mean, continually. So. Man, that's a pretty tough one. And, you know, and so I think part of what happens is we need to be raising our hands and sort of calling BS on a lot of this stuff. Things that don't make sense, they don't make sense. And uh, and we need to be able to say that without fear of getting, you know, 100 arrows shot at you. Uh, we need scientists to be scientists. Uh, you know, I appreciate that they feel strongly about stuff, but they, you know, the idea of science advocacy where, where scientists proof stuff and then then mix that with their own opinions and they think that that's okay, it's not okay. And uh, unfortunately, that is pervasive throughout the climate community. Um, and there's something that they call now a replication crisis, which is, um, you know, you can't replicate if if someone in Alabama does a climate study, uh, someone in Italy can't replicate it. They can't replicate the results. So. Um, that's a that's a crisis. It's a legitimate crisis if you're if you have these models that are guessing at things that you can't reproduce everywhere. It's got, it calls into question the entire foundation of the argument. So, I think we know a lot more than we did 30 years ago in terms of the science, but the amount of stuff we don't know is still astronomical. And so, again, when we say we've got eight years to do stuff, there's no basis for that. There's just no basis for that. Those are political and media constructs. Now, one of the things, you know, um, since climate change is real, yeah. then, you know, and we see that, uh, you know, there's a rising in temperatures and um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to play a little, uh, I don't know if it's devil's advocate really, but sure. um, one, one of the things is that, you know, and this is kind of a, a scenario uh, I will say that um, my parents used to play on me is like give you the worst case. This is what it's going to happen, you know, to make you make you start taking action so you don't get to, you know, a, a crisis point. Um, so could it be, I guess, that um, that the um, different entities are playing up the worst case scenario so that it makes people take some action, even if it is minimal, because it is an overwhelming problem that obviously not one person can solve. Um, do you think perhaps that's why they go to the the doomsday? I understand what you're saying about the the money factor and the, the political factor, but is it um, also possibly to our benefit to think about, okay, if we don't, you know, if we keep kicking the ball um, or the kicking the can down the down the road, of course, it's only getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, do you think that uh, it's more dangerous to have like you know, saying like, OK, if we don't if we don't do something, guys, you know, we're, we're washing away or or, you know, or catastrophes are going to um, uh, uh, start happening. Do you think that it's too dangerous to tell people, I guess, the 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 worst case scenario, because it actually leads to um, people not taking any action at all because they're overwhelmed? Well, I think that's what's happened now. Right. Mm -hmm. I think people are overwhelmed. Uh, mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you ask someone today, hey, what are you doing about the climate? Watch the look on their face. Right. They'll just lock up. Right. So mm -hmm. I think that that exact scenario has happened because of climate panic. I think it is so scary and so big and you feel so helpless that no one has any idea what to do. So I think that we're there. I don't think that, uh, you know, I don't think that. And it's a direct result of this strategy of communicating and promoting and and look, I, I've, I have found the blueprints for these, right? Columbia University created the template for how to castigate people who don't believe what they believe. It's shocking. Um, on one hand, it's shocking. On the other hand, it makes perfect sense because this is exactly what you're reading. They tell you very clearly, here are the words to use to describe someone who doesn't believe in climate change. Use these words, you know, and it actually sends some chills up my spine because I think to myself, wow, you know, the only other denier construct I can think of is when people deny the Holocaust. Right. And mm -hmm. think of the emotions that that I mean, this is intentional. Right. So this is not conspiracy theory. There's an actual strategy for how to do this. So we're there. 
we have reached the goal of that and that we've scared the hell out of everyone. Thank you very much. Now what? Um, but, you know, and, and, and look, Al Gore, for whatever he did with his movies, he was very clear about this. You know, I, I in my book, I, I have the quote of what he said, that he believes it's fine to misrepresent the importance of it in order to get people to move. And his partner in crime, the uh, scientist, Dr. Sh Steven Schneider, has passed on, but uh, from Stanford, uh, they both won the Nobel Prize as teammates for this. But Dr. Schneider, he, 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 there was a phrase he used, he called it a double, a double ethical bind. And he set a new form of science advocacy. So the double ethical bind was on one hand, there's science that proves stuff. On the other hand, there's what I believe about that science. And hopefully they're the same thing. But if they're not, who gives a damn? If it's important enough, the lie is fine. And when science, we, <laughs> and we gave him a Nobel Prize for that. So when the two guys that have won Nobel Prize for this sort of advocacy, when they both are standing out there saying, I know I've exaggerated it, but it's important enough, then, you know, you got to you got to put up the white flag and say, no, 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 this is this is wrong. So, look, we're at the end of this first 25 years. We've seen the damage it causes. Part of why it's overwhelming is because the solutions that are out there are hugely expensive and they equate to basically spinning the earth backwards on its axis. So what are you going to do tonight to go help that? Anything? <laughs> right. It's so <laughs> overwhelming um, here, you know, but but um, so no one knows what to do. Um, so we end up just sort of locking up and saying, well, let's let's hope that these big international conferences can come up with some exotic international sounding piece of paper that will finally, after 30, 40 years, help solve this problem, which of course it doesn't. It's just more political theater. So um, so is there value to, to communicating the worst case? To some extent. Um, but when you start putting numbers to the worst case scenario, um, you know, is it, it I'll, I'll give you an example. If, is it worth you personally to spend ten to twenty thousand dollars of your income every single year for the rest of your life to solve it is it that important and i suspect for 99 percent of the people that answer is a big no um the problem is no one tells you that number you kind of have to back into it and so i've done some of the math and i'm like it's an astronomical number to 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 completely decarbonize the grid uh, do all these things that they're talking about. I mean, it's, you know, you're talking uh, multiples of global GDP type numbers. And so, um, so it's a pretty, it's a pretty dramatic thing. So um, I, it's a long answer to your question, but I think we have seen the results of decades of climate panic and they're not good. Awareness is great, scared children, a scared generation of children and, and a total feeling of climate helplessness those are terrible outcomes. There's just no other way to say it. Those are awful. They lead us into complete paralysis. Yes. Um, yes. And I, I, I understand where you're coming from. And, you know, it makes me think of two, two questions to, to ask, um, you know, are there things that we can uh, do to make progress um, uh, to fix the climate without ruining our way of life? You know, um, one of the things that uh, this is from a, a different episode, and we talked about you know the the push for recycling and things like that. But then um, once I dove into uh, listening to the expert that I had on, it seemed that recycling was you know um, like barely barely going to make a dent. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, so I don't know. Are there things that we can do? that won't ruin our way of life because the things like you've mentioned before, um, they're, they're extreme. <laughs> and so, right. um, you know, I start thinking about, you know, all those, uh, uh, you know, sci-fi movies that I've seen and I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. <laughs> right. Well, uh, part of, part of the, what hap what lead, you know, when, when we have extreme emotions about stuff, it leads you to extreme reactions. And, and so part of why, what I've been pushing back on is, um, the extreme solutions that are that are being proposed out there, right? So I come from the solar industry, and so all of a sudden, solar is the answer to the world's problems. And I, I'm like, wait, wait, what? Um, it works, you know, when it works, and it works for, you know, I think when we model solar systems, I think we model it working from, you know, five hours a day, 
So then what are we going to do for the rest of the 19 hours, right? We're going to sit in the dark. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, these are reality. What, you know, windmills are modeled for about 40% usage. So what do you do for the other 60%? You need other stuff. So, um, right. So, oh, and then people go, oh, well, it's EVs. Well, you know, the, the, the fact is off of the assembly line, an EV has a much higher carbon footprint than an internal combustion engine. And it only catches up depending on how you drive and where you live and where you charge it. And if you have long range batteries, you may never catch up. It's actually, so each one of these, uh, you know, I keep looking at this, our climate problem is a consumption problem. You know, it's just, let's just bottom line it. Our, our climate problem is we're just using too much stuff. Uh, and discarding it, right? So that TV that I could potentially repair, you know what? You know, Best Buy's having an awesome sale on a 50-inch Samsung TV, 189 bucks. You know, do I really want to spend a Saturday fixing this TV? I could just go buy one. What the heck, right? Mm -hmm. Well, so all of all of the, the the policies that we have just encourage more consumption. So we're trying to solve our overconsumption problem with more consumption. So all of this, the new bill that just came out, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. It's just billions for more solar, more windmill, more EVs, more electric charging. You know, if you install a solar, you know, panel on your roof today, you've added CO2. It never gets below that. You're you're comparing yourself against potentially avoiding worse emissions in the future, but it never gets better. It just gets less worse, and those are very big differences. So. Um, we're trying to solve our consumption problem with more consumption, and it just logically doesn't even make sense. So, you know, the, unfortunately, people don't like to hear this. The best thing that happened to the climate game in the past 30 years was COVID. In one mm. year, we had uh, our emissions dropped by 11% in the U.S., 11% in, in 12 months. We did in one year what 30 years of climate policy haven't been able to do. Think about that, right? And why? Because we just did less stuff. Hey, we worked less. We didn't drive as much. We didn't go to the office as much. So how come no one's saying that? Could you imagine a, a, a national policy that says, hey, we've decided that you know, all offices are closed on Friday. You're going to telecommute. You just save 20%, right? But that kind of stuff never even gets, it's, not, it's never even discussed, you know, and so I, which is just shocking to me. I mean, these are freebies. These are freebies. You know, we've, we've, we've made more progress in one year than 30 years of consumptive spending haven't been able to do. So why do we want more of it? And that's, that's, that's part of my premise. So consumption uh, or, uh, you know, reducing consumption, uh, carbon removal. If carbon is the enemy, all of the solutions that we're promoting adding are adding carbon. So things like trees, natural farming, all of these dozens and hundreds of natural ways to sequester carbon. Imagine every national park in the U.S. being a nationally protected carbon sink. That's there. That is protected. They, we don't touch the trees. Their job is to suck up carbon and remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Okay, so there's all those types of things. And then there's carbon removal technologies that are in their very early stages. Don't make much economic sense now. But if the goal is to remove tech, uh, CO2 from the air, why are we driving in Tesla? Why, don't, why aren't we trying to uh, develop and commercialize these big carbon removal technologies that still have a long way to go, but actually are built to lower carbon? Um, and then last but not least, everyone hates this word, but adaptation, right? Uh, you know, I mean, the truth is, we adapt. Humans adapt. We're always going to adapt. The, the Himalayas are not going to melt tomorrow. Uh, we've got a 30-year head start if the, the Himalayas <laughs> start to uh, decline in their ice. So there's not going to be like 2 billion people sitting on the top of Mount Everest that all of a sudden there's a big you know, glacier that melts and sends those 2 billion people into the abyss. Again, <laughs> fantasy, right? It's just not going to happen. So um, the best example I have is New Orleans. Um, back in 2007, Hurricane Katrina, right? Category four. Mm -hmm. I personally was there uh, uh, in the recovery aspect um, when we we built solar homes for people in the lower ninth ward. We donated a bunch of solar uh, systems to help them get back onto the grid. Um, so I personally witnessed all of that stuff. And, you know, the levees broke for the hurricane. And so we realized that our own, it was through our own mess that we didn't handle what nature came at us. So here we are, 2021. Hurricane Ida comes through New Orleans, another category uh, for hurricane, and 
you know, the death count was a tenth of what it was in, uh, with Katrina because we fixed the levees. We adapted. So New Orleans, rather than try to spin the earth backwards and, you know, globally cool the planet, um, <laughs> they just fixed their levees. They adapted and it worked. It saved people. And so if we're worried about coastal flooding, then why are we uh, approving all of the permits to let people build right on the shore? Let's move them a mile inland and 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 we'll save all that. So there's a lot of things that we can do that that just make common sense that, you know, it, you know, you're not going to go build your house on a floodplain uh, if you know that <laughs> once every seven weeks that you're going to be flooded. You're not going to do that. So um, <laughs> so you adapt. We adapt. We adapt to all those things. And um, um, so and, you know, our history has been full of that, of us adapting to um, to new challenges, new challenges with the planet, new uh, constraints and things like that. Yes, you you brought up a, a whole different point that, you know, uh, kind of was already sitting on the surface, but it brings to light, um, I guess, each individual in the fact that you were saying our climate problem is really a consumption problem. And yep. when I was I was looking at that and thinking through that and, um, you know, even um, and I'm sure you've seen this, uh, especially because you are here in uh, California, as I am. Uh, California, of course, um, is uh, known for uh, being a little eccentric more than, uh, you know, maybe other places in the, the U.S. And we are yeah. into our, uh, you know, green juices. And we like to think of ourselves as, you know, the healthy people <laughs> out here. Right, of course. <laughs> um, but we also, you know, we're, we're, we're also um, those types of people that are like, oh, you know, here's this bag that's going to do, you know, 1% for the ocean, or let me go buy my water bottle that is made out of um, recycled, uh, you know, uh, coconut <laughs> or something like that. Um, and we right. keep doing those things and we use it to, uh, you know, showcase to people that, you know, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm more um, eco-conscious than you are, but we are still buying these things that we don't necessarily need. Um, yeah. And so, you know, um, and, and that also goes with a, a previous episode that I had called the plastic crisis, right? So almost everything yeah. we, we have is made out of plastic these days, right? Um, yeah. All of us are working on these computers, which are plastic. And then, you know, once we either find a, it either breaks or we need to go get a new model because we, you know, need the latest, the greatest, then we just throw it in the pile. Um, yeah. And uh, yes, you know, you, you brought up a, a very um, key point that I think a lot of people, they don't want to face, right? Because <laughs> everybody is turned into kind of, I guess, this... Uh, um, lack of better terms, like a spoiled child. <laughs> yeah, but we don't we don't we don't call ourselves that, right? We right. We, we call ourselves uh, uh, eco warriors. Yes, yeah, <laughs> or something and... like that. We use the word justice a lot, right? Eco justice <laughs> and uh, stuff like that. Yes, but yeah, but you bring up a point I think that is staring us right in our face. That if we really want to solve the problem, we have to look at how. We are interacting ourselves with the earth and with ourselves uh, and with ourselves of like, why do we need to, you know, um, uh, project an image instead of actually doing something? Um, and I think we are in this era, obviously, with social media and everything um, of uh, projection, right? Instead of actually, yeah. um, uh, you know, facing our our demons and ourselves and and, and doing something. Um, and when you said that, I was like, aha, it was almost like a, a key. I was like, we could easily solve it. Just stop everyone. <laughs> and yes, you well, know, we did, I, and we did, right. We showed right, and, 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 I, and this leads me to talk about the, the, you know, the pandemic, because I did read articles about, um, you know, uh, how the air was cleaner, how animals were like, you know, feeling like they could yeah. walk around <laughs> again. <laughs> and exactly. they were like, okay, there's space for us again. And, you know, um, the grass was coming back and flowers were like, uh, you know, um, uh, blooming um, better than they were before um, because uh, we didn't have all this uh, pollution that was going on because we weren't driving our cars because we had nowhere to go. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, that the the pandemic i believe is you know obviously has been life changing for everyone on the planet in all different ways but it was definitely i would say a wake up call and it should be a major wake up call to this uh you know this this climate uh, change problem um that we should look at like well look 
look at that. It's, you know, um, it's us, not, <laughs> it's really us, like, you know, and how we are, how we're approaching our lives and that we are, um, we should actually be relieved and say, we're doing, we're doing too much. <laughs> we're doing too much. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I, um, I, I forward, I take that same, you know, if you have that mm -hmm. realization, then this whole argument why that, you know, I keep reading articles that say, you know, 11 companies are responsible for 70% of all the emissions, right? So it's mm -hmm. basically a target on oil companies back. Um, Right. But that's just so not true because it's not like they, uh, um, you know, and, and the idea is, well, if we just stop those 11 companies, then we've solved 70% of the problem. And it's just, uh, again, it's just data manipulation, right? Because, um, you know, oil companies make stuff that we use. So mm -hmm. um, they're just like Facebook, they're just like Twitter. And so if you want to get back at oil companies, stop using their stuff. And, and so I, this is another of my messages when, uh, you know, I, I have this conversation a bunch, we gotta, we gotta get rid of fossil fuels. And I say, great, you first. So here, let me just explain what that means. That means you're, you're not wearing your clothes. You're not living in a house. You're not driving any car or taking any sort of public transportation or any transportation. You don't have indoor plumbing, uh, food, um, right? Let's just go through the list. You know, you're here because of oil and gas. I'm not an oil and gas guy, but, but let's just, you know, the reality of the situation is if you're standing up and saying, um, uh, you know, we got to get rid of fossil fuels tomorrow. I, you first, right? Go ahead, go for it. Take your family, sell all your stuff, give up your clothes, go live in a yurt up on top of Pike's Peak and go for it. Uh, you know, you're, it's entirely within your right. You will have saved your family. Uh, so, but of course no one does that, right? Joe Biden looks at the camera and says, uh, you know, flies, he gets in Air Force One, flies over to Glasgow, stares into the camera and says, you know, we're going to get rid of fossil fuels, then flies back, right? How many tons of CO2 did he admit? So, you know, it's just we're to the point of ridiculousness with a lot of this stuff. It's, we're not getting rid of fossil fuels. We know it's got a bad side, but it's also, you know, every one of us, you know, certainly in this country has been lifted up by the the benefits of oil and gas. It's just a fact. The fact that you and I are talking right now, the fact that all of us are, you know, have lives are, are enabled by oil and gas. So any policy that just chooses to ignore that is is just fiction. Right. It's just you can't make any solar panels without oil and gas. I worked for solar companies, right? The first step in manufacturing that process is to fire up a big tractor and mow down a mountain and, and start sorting through dirt to get all the minerals. There's nothing clean about that. So we can call it whatever we want. It's just uh, it's just not the reality of it. So um, so to your point where you're saying, yeah, it's all us. Well, oil, you know, if you shut down all the oil companies, OK, they go out of business. But hey, guess what? We're back living in caves. And that's just the fact uh, we can't, you know, there's just no path around that. So I would love to have, you know, a, a, an energy policy or, or just to have that on the table as we describe stuff, as, as opposed to just demonizing and oil shaming right now. You like you said, you feel bad. Everyone's driving their Tesla and I'm looking at them going, OK, first of all, there's thirty thousand dollars of public money in your car. You're welcome. <laughs> and second of all, you just made the problem so much worse because an, a Tesla coming off a, an assembly line is way worse than my 10-year-old Subaru in terms of uh, CO2. So, so, you know, it's just nonsense. It's just green signaling, virtue signaling, and uh, we're making so little progress. Now... I have, uh, I guess, two questions. I'm first going to ask for a definition type of question, just because it is something that comes up. And I think a lot of people um, may or may not know what it means. Um, I wanted to ask what exactly, because we're always talking about carbon. So yeah. let's explain to people about the carbon footprint and how is it measured and what the heck is it? Carbon is code for CO2 levels. Okay, so it's what you emit, what gets emitted, CO2 gets emitted from, you know, just day to day living. So, um, so when you, you know, every, and, and when you, when you create energy of any source, you create um, byproducts and CO2 is a byproduct. So if you burn uh, coal, for example, you create a lot of CO2. Um, if you, if you burn natural gas, you create a lot of CO2. But if you install solar and you build solar panels, you're creating some amount of CO2. So, 
Um, there is there is a narrative out there that talks about zero carbon energy, and that's just uh, that's factually a fiction. It's it's a made up term, uh, and I know because I helped commercialize this stuff. And and what they do is they just say, well, you know, once it's all made and once it's all installed, and then it's actually producing electricity out in the field, it doesn't emit anything. So if you choose what you're going to ignore, then so many other things could be made to look comparatively better. So. Um, so it's the idea of everything, every time you, every energy source has byproducts and the byproducts are not usually good. So everything you burn, everything, every energy source, if you go on and turn on a light, no matter the source that that is coming from, it, CO2 is being emitted somewhere. Same with your cars. If you're driving your car, um, you know, you're emitting lots of CO2 if you're, if you're spitting out fossil fuels. But if you have an electric car, that car was built in factories that was built, you know, using lithium and all that stuff was mined. And so that electric car that's bright and shiny and looks clean. Uh, and when you drive it, it's quiet and it doesn't emit anything as you drive it. But when it shows up on your driveway, it's already emitted a lot just to make it. Okay, and then when you plug it in, some energy source somewhere is is emitting CO2. So, um, you know, you're dirtying some something somewhere just by charging it. And it, it varies uh, by neighborhood. It varies by by the hour, by the second. It, it varies. Does, did that help? Yes, yes, that's good. I, I just think it's important for people to understand the carbon footprint because it is something that is, um, you know, thrown around a lot in uh, the climate change discussions. And so I think it's important for, for people to understand that. Um, and because we were talking about uh, businesses, we were looking at oil, um, and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the whole uh, uh, B Corp um, yeah. um, uh, scenarios and things like that. Um, should we, I guess, uh, hold industries and business accountable for climate change or should we uh, lay off of them because you know right now as you see in uh, uh, in the public that everybody is has a magnifying glass on all different businesses yeah so I, I believe so I look I think the good side of all this climate panic if there is such a thing is awareness awareness is fantastic so 30 years into this, we're way smarter and way more transparent about what we're looking for. We now expect businesses to have some sustainability efforts in place. Um, so how do you do that? And how do you hold them accountable? And there are different approaches, similar to what we're doing with energy, the carrot and stick approach, right? So um, the stick approach is I'm going to penalize you if you're bad, right? So, so, you know, uh, you know, that the stick approach uses regulation. All right, I'm going to decide how much uh, that company down the street can emit. If they go above that, I'm going to slap them hard with penalties. That's one approach. Um, another approach is just like I said with Facebook. You know what? If you don't like what they're doing, if they're, if they're spitting bad stuff into the river, quit buying their stuff. Get all your neighbors to quit buying your stuff. Use social media to say, you know what? These guys are bad. I watch them do bad stuff. Um, right. Let's make them make there be a market penalty for what they do um, until they fix it. And, and that stuff is powerful, um, you know, and, and look at all the ESG efforts that are now um, starting to go away because we tried to give them penalties and we're realizing, well, maybe that just doesn't work. But uh, you know, there's ways to do it. Timberland has been a good uh, example of a company that, um, you know, are doing lots of things on their own initiatives. Um, just to help their brand and to help their, um, you know, their their public perception of how things are done. And so uh, Microsoft, I, I applaud Microsoft uh, from their climate perspective because they're one of the few companies that said, hey, guess what? It's not enough to zero out my emissions because emissions are just what I'm going to spit out into the air tomorrow. Um, you know, even if I zero that out, I've still done a lot of damage. So their their goal is, hey, we're gonna we're gonna remove all of the carbon we've emitted since 1975. So you know that puts them at the top of my list. <laughs> I look at that and I go, okay, that's a commitment. You know, zero, uh, you know, emissions reductions or zero emissions that are going to take 30 years or 50 years. You know, come on, that's just that's just uh, virtue signaling. But someone who says, "Hey, I'm gonna re I'm gonna repair all the damage I've done since I've been alive," that's a whole different ballgame. So I think that there's ways to do it. I think that you know, if we don't like, you know, 
when I didn't like Facebook and I don't like Facebook, I got off the platform to hell with them. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry for my language, right? With Twitter, same thing. So if we don't like, you know, and I say the same thing about oil and gas, boy, if you really don't like it, quit using their stuff, you know, just evolve today, quit using their stuff. We have so much power as individuals. The markets speak so clearly and so directly. If we don't want something, it goes away. And so if companies are bad polluters and they have a bad public record on sustainability, stop using their stuff. There's plenty of alternatives. There are very few companies out there um, that have monopolies uh, that you can't find uh, substitutes for. You know, I even with Amazon, I'm to the point now where, you know, regard they're just so big and so monopolistic. I'm like, you know what, I'll go and spend 10, 20 percent more just so I can go down to, and support my local store, um, because, you know, having something that gets you know, that gets forwarded to my doorstep within four hours of me ordering it is just spewing CO2 all down the supply chain, right? There's lots of smoke coming out of all of those smokestacks. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so, you know, it, yeah, it keeps coming back to like, you know, in, in my mind, because I think in pictures, I keep just, uh, just imagining all the ways that we are, you know, um, not maybe consciously thinking about how how we consume and how we are ourselves contributing to this problem. So how do you think yeah. that we need to just as just an everyday person, um, how do they need to think differently uh, now and in the future about climate change? Uh, well, I think first and foremost is um, like what we have what, like we've what we've said. It's a consumption problem. Okay, mm -hmm. so you know as as you had an aha moment. It was kind of that way for me too. It's like, well, maybe I don't need to throw out this TV. Maybe I don't need the new gadget this Christmas as I'm buying electronics for my kids. I'm also cringing a little bit going, dang, you know, that, that is, you know, produced in China and they're pouring sludge into some man-made lake out there, you know, so an awareness of that and the way that this works is a really powerful thing because it affects your choices. Hey, maybe I don't need to go to the store five times a day to buy a nut on uh, for a screw or something like that. You know what I mean? Just all of these decisions. Maybe I'll just wait and do it once over the weekend. Um, you know, spending spending lots of time driving and flying and and doing all that kind of stuff. We're in control of all of that kind of stuff. Maybe it's easier instead of COP twenty seven uh, having hundreds and thousands of planes <laughs> flying to Europe. Maybe COP twenty eight happens on Zoom. <laughs> what a great idea. Think of all the emissions we avoid, right? Stuff like that. I mean, I'm just I'm just absolutely flabbergasted when I see these people up there with their microphones. I'm like, the carbon footprint of that event was phenomenal, right? And, and it, it takes a lot of fossil fuels to fly to a conference to hate on fossil fuels. So it's just it's so, it's so ironic to me. So um, so having that awareness, look, having that awareness. Um, but I think also it's important to understand that what you're reading in the newspapers, these are not scientists writing stuff. These are narratives, they're stories, they're crafted. They are not based on facts. You know, I, I talked about the scenarios. There's nothing wrong with scenarios. Scenarios help us understand the world. They have tremendous value. But to assume that forward projecting scenarios are scientific fact that our future is scientifically determined already no, just tell yourself no. That is just not true. Even you know when you when you really focus. Even Steven Schneider, <laughs> the guy who started this whole science advocacy, when he was pressed to the canvas on this, and say, "Well, can you prove it?" And he says, "No, they want me to prove stuff. Of course, I can't prove stuff." And I and I just remember thinking, "Yeah, we expect scientists to prove stuff. That's why we have them. Otherwise, you're me." <laughs> right. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just someone with an opinion. So so I would just say, you know, kind of go through the media, but but train yourself to to look for the qualifies, the ifs, the shoulds, the mays projected to be all of that stuff. Those are just guesses. They're just stories. Um, someone somewhere made up that that scenario. And then, it, you know, he, he had some other peers that looked at that and they go, well, it could happen. But none of it says it's going to happen. And so I think those are those are very realistic things. And so um, think hard. You know, I, I'm in the middle of I, I mentioned my 10 year old Subaru. This is a very real thing. I'm like, am I going to buy an electric car? Because it's such a thing. And I'm like, I bet I can make this car last for another two years just because I'll delay consumption. Right. It's I'll mm -hmm. help the planet by not encouraging more and more consumption. You know, what's happened in the EV market is. Um, cars are getting bigger. Now, now 
people, you know, the, the percentage is shifting over to big old trucks, which mm-hmm. are just have a, a bigger and why? Because the trucks get the bigger rebates. We're, con- we're encouraging people to consume. So smarter consumerism, you know, we're not going without, but maybe you don't replace that TV. Maybe you fix your bike. Maybe you make things last a little bit longer. Maybe you just don't drive as much, or maybe you don't fly as much, or maybe you do, maybe your company imp- institutes a four day work week where the fifth day is everyone on zoom. It can work. We know that it can work. Right. And, and things like that, we're all in control of. Um, and it all makes things incrementally better. better. Don't cut down the trees in your backyard or uh, maybe you decide to replace the lawn uh, with some, uh, you know, some some xeriscape that you don't have to water, stuff like that. Yes. And, you know, the two words that keep popping in my mind when you say this thing, uh, say what you're saying is like uh, we have to learn to have a, you know, global mindset and uh and have some gratitude (laughs) i think that's that that's missing um i i think that those are the things that keep popping into my mind those are the words that keep uh, coming up is that i think that is um what is uh, uh driving this a little bit um it's a little bit deeper than we than we think it's not just you know the temperature rising and you know we have pollution and you know um destruction I, it's a it's a deeper it's a inner it's inner work that we all have to do is that we have to um realize that we are all connected and that um i think that we've lost the the thing of being grateful <laughs> that's what i keep thinking those are the words that keep popping up when you're 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 that's saying a good word saying. yeah it's a- um, it's and a I, good word. It's yeah, yeah. Things are usually deeper than you know what they appear on the surface, and and uh, you know what you've said. That's what it's, it's made me realize um, that that's what we really need in order to start working on this problem. Which is uh, those two things alone, having a global mindset and thinking about that we're connected in such a decisive, uh, divisive time, um, and you know gratitude which I think, uh, you know, is maybe a shocking word for people. (laughs) Uh, Gratitude and responsibility. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. look, uh, you know, I mean, oil and gas is is maybe, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's got a lot of downsides, but it Mm -hmm. also lifted civilizations out of poverty. So to deny to deny other nations access to it, to me, is an act of aggression. How can Mm -hmm. we do that? How can we possibly deny them the same fuel, cheap fuel that lifted our entire civilization out of poverty? It's, uh, it's madness. It's just, I I don't even, it doesn't even make sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so I just have two more questions for you. Um, Of course. So um, I wanted to know um, when you were writing your book, uh, Climate Maturity, what did you hope um, to inspire people to do? Uh, honestly, I hope to inspire people to do exactly what we're doing, to talk. Because um, um, as long as I've been in this business, there's been almost no dialogue. There's no dialogue. It's just monologues, right? It's it's one side yelling at the other, pointing fingers. Um, and this leads me to my second point, which is, uh, and I, I believe this, this needs to be bipartisan. Um, right now, uh, and, and, you know, unfortunately, energy and climate policy is a political thing. It's a political hot button. Um, and I'll just say it. It's a Democrat thing. It just is. Um, but half of the world isn't. And, um, you know, half, half of the country isn't. And half, uh, you know, we're failing with global climate policy, not because of style and communications. We're failing because half of the world doesn't want it. Developing nations want nothing to do with it. Developing nations want oil and gas. Give it to us. Give it to us cheap. Don't show up with carbon credits and solar panels. I'll kick you out, right? That's so it's it's ludicrous. But half of our own country doesn't want it and, and just doesn't want it. You know, I mean, they're, you know, talk, think about Iowa, right? You think Iowa farmers who are driving combines and you show up with a solar panel and Tesla, what are they going to say? <laughs> are they going to say welcome? They're going to say great. Drive that down to the gas station and bring me some some fuel for my combine. So, um, so uh, you know, I my view is we don't make significant progress unless it's bipartisan. And when I mean that, I mean I don't mean you just hey congratulations you had a conquest vote from the other side, like Joe Manchin. I mean. Both sides can stand up proudly and say, you know what, we're doing this thing together, and um, uh, and we mean this. 
you know, we, you know, they can all go back to their respective districts and brag about this and not uh, not feel uh, like they're getting attacked for it. And so maybe that's uh, a little bit of nirvana, I guess. But uh, I, I just, you know, look at what's happened. And it's just the pendulum going side to side. And we, you know, we drink heartily when the money comes in and then we we uh, button up the hatches when when the money dries up. And it's just the political pendulum swings back and forth. And we make no true progress. So I believe that that's to be the case. So, um, yeah. So did that, that answer your question? Maybe that, that, yes, uh, yes, off yes. yeah, that gives me an idea of, uh, yeah, I just wanted to know, cause you know, when, uh, writing a book of course is never an easy task. And so, you know, um, I always like to know what drives people to create the book. Um, if they of course weren't uh, being uh, forced to by an agent or something like that. Um, but, uh, when they have something that they're passionate about, um, as you are very passionate about this topic, um, it's always interesting to find out, uh, you know, what was going on in your mind as you were developing this book? You know, I, I, to, to really get at the core of it, I, you know, I have a very finely tuned, um, uh, I'll be nice about it, untruth detector. And so as I have progressed in the industry, and it's really been about the past eight years, um, man, that's just been firing on all cylinders. I keep, I read stuff that I know is not true. I know it based on my own experience and, and, or I read most of the stuff I read, I just raise my hand and go, this doesn't make sense to me. And so I'm, you know, I'm searching for the truth. I don't want that to sound high minded. I, I and you know, I called my book, the muddy climate middle, cause this is a slog. This is not easy. Um, you know, trying to sort through science when I am not a client scientist, I, I am an engineer and I have some technical background and I teach it, but you know, I don't do primary climate research. I'm a consumer like everyone else is. And I'm trying to figure out, all right, is this is this science that proves stuff? Or is this just a scientist who has a very high opinion of his or herself that has done some science and has extrapolated climate death out of that? It's really difficult. So part of it is I feel um, an obligation to my own children, to the children I've taught and the uh, young adults that are entering the workforce is, Go find the truth. We haven't found it with the climate. And so I'm digging for it. I suggest to everyone, go dig for it. What you're reading in the papers is not the truth. And the truth is elusive. It's evolving continually. We, we are learning more every day. And so that's what inspires me is to find the truth. What's the what's the nugget of truth? Where is the actual reality of this? You know, no one, everyone that says that there's an emergency, but no one's driving to the emergency room. What's wrong with this picture? Mm-hmm. So that's what inspires me. Yes. I, I like that. Like, uh, you know, uh, like I said, when I when I read your book, I was like, because uh, I had been one of those uh, siloed individuals that had gotten, you know, drawn in. And then it made me start uh, questioning things. And I was like, you know, yeah, that's right. Because I, I tend to be a pretty practical and common sense thinker. I'd like to think I know that common sense isn't that common. Um, but uh, I, I would uh, like to think that I have a good dose of it most of the time. Um, that, uh, yeah, you really got me to start thinking and questioning, like, uh, everything that I've been seeing that's, uh, been pushed. Um, so this leads me to then, uh, for people and, you know, everybody of course is, um, you know, overwhelmed with thinking about this topic, because when we think, you know, here we are like, uh, uh, pretty much like we're an ant <laughs> on a huge big plant planet. Right, um, sure. so when we, so, so when we think about, you know, here we're these itty little, uh, people on this, uh, large planet that is having a, a crisis, um, should we feel hopeful for the future, future when it comes to discussing climate change? Absolutely. Absolutely hopeful. I think you're starting to see the, the sea change a, a bit. So, um, and it's happened actually relatively recently in the past few months. So remember these apocalyptic scenarios I told you about where it just projects it upward and upward and upward to the right. Um, some scientists have have revised a lot of their projections based on real world data up to 2020. And now, uh, uh, you know, landmark for me is, you know, a month ago, an article in the New York Times said, hey, maybe it's maybe the future isn't going to be as bad as we all thought. That to me is is an earth, an earthquake, right? When you start starting to see that. So logic 
is starting to creep into this discussion. So, um, so I think years of scaring the hell out of everyone is we're seeing it, right? We're, you know what, we're just so scared. We're, we're immobile at this point. We're just paralyzed. So it's not helping. Um, so we're starting to see this level of thinking and just pragmatism, people saying, you know, I know everyone I know cares about the climate. I don't know one person who just goes, you know, I'm just going to go out and burn oil in my front yard. I don't know one person, right? So everyone cares about the planet. Let's start with that. We all are in this together. We know this. I, I don't know of anyone who's just going to flagrantly abuse it. And so um, we're all making better choices. We're all doing this. And so just to, to have a better, uh, you're starting to see um, the narratives start to get tempered a little bit more. We're starting to, um, you know, with the frustration that just came out of COP27, which is they didn't make any new commitments. Everyone's realizing that all the old ones are invalid because they're just pieces of paper. And the only thing they decided upon was to generate a big fund where we can start paying people reparations right now. You know, we're starting to really, you know, really question about, you know, is it really going to be possible to spin the earth backwards? And, uh, you know, it's just we're realizing that that's just a bit, a bit of just craziness. And so, so you're starting to see it. So I think it's super hopeful. I think the more conversations we have about this, where, where all of us are just going, um, there's options. We can choose to use less. We can choose, we can choose our paths, every single one of this that doesn't require us to give up our entire way of life. And I think once you have that realization, like you said, aha, it's a consumption problem. You mean, I just, use less stuff. And it's not hard. It's really not hard um, to do that. Once you do that, you chances are you're probably already doing it. Chances are you're going home and turning off lights, turning off water. You know, we in California, we can serve where we can anyway. So, um, so we're making a lot of these choices already. So I'm, I'm very hopeful. I, I think that just having open conversations like we're doing, being willing, in my case, to be wrong where I'm wrong, uh, but just being willing to be out there and uh, and push a different narrative out there. I can't tell you how uh, encouraging it's been for me to have so many people say, you know, maybe I don't agree with you, but I'm glad you're doing it. And, but I've had lots of people saying, I've been wondering about all this. You know, is it really just these two extremes? And so there's a lot of people out here who are are thinking similarly. Yes. Yeah, you definitely opened my eyes in a, a whole different light that I've been thinking because I was, you know, going down the dark tunnel with everyone else. <laughs> um, it's a helpless feeling. It really is a helpless feeling. <laughs> yes. So I was like, okay, what vacations do I need to get in before that island no longer exists? <laughs> that's, right. What that's a terrible thought. That, I mean... That's yeah, I know. That's how I was looking at it. I was like, where let me make that bucket list now. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. So that's what I was thinking. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Cortez, for your time and insight. To learn more about Mark and his book, Climate Maturity, go to climatematurity.com. If you have a passion for an underserved community, a social justice problem, or want to change minds, contact Project Good Work at projectgood.work to start your project of change today. We'd like to send our deepest gratitude to our ongoing show supporter, Blair Chapman. Subscribe to our mailing list at projectgood.work slash subscribe to get our episodes and blog articles sent to you each month. Plus get a 10% discount on any project you start at projectgood.work. Also register to join us on our Changemaker Conference on May 25th at changemakerconference.com. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Project Good, where we're focused on what matters. 